0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Jonah. Here's Nate. The book of Jonah gives us the wonderful, amazing, grace-filled perspective of God. And of course, that perspective was very necessary for the prophet Jonah For the nation of Israel and by extension the modern church to know and to receive. For when a people who follow God, who know the gospel, who love Christ or at least claim to love Christ. When they recognize the deep and wonderful love of God. When they see the compassion and the mercy of God and his willingness to reach into dark and lost and blind parts of our culture, world, and society, it ought to shift their own hearts. And so the book of Jonah is a wonderful book for us to discover the perspective of God himself, the compassion of the Lord. Now at the end of Jonah chapter 2, we saw the prophet proclaim a prayer to the Lord. And at the end of that prayer, he said, salvation belongs to to the Lord. It was a declaration. And I think in many ways, something that he was finally willing to admit, Lord, this salvation, it does not belong to me. It is yours to do with as you wish. And so once he came to that place in life, once he was willing to say out loud, Lord, this belongs to you, you know, in one sense, it's as if he's saying, if you're willing, Lord, to give this." To the Assyrian people, of all people, Lord Amos and Hosea, they seem to be prophesying and announcing that the Assyrians are going to come and actually fight against us. Israel, your known and loved and covenant people, they're going to fight against us. But Lord, if you have salvation in store, even for them, it's your call. It's your decision For salvation belongs to you. A great thing for Jonah to admit. And when he did, the fish that he was living in for those three days, it says in verse 10 of chapter 2, Vomited Jonah out upon dry land. And that's where we pick up our story in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, of course, the first thing that we notice here is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. <laughs> you know, in one sense, the Lord could have just had the fish vomit Jonah up onto dry land, and that could have been the end of the story in Jonah's life. God could have found another prophet who would be faithful and obedient, but the Lord looks at Jonah and says, listen, I'm going to ask you once again to go to Nineveh and cry out against it. Will you do it? He's giving Jonah another opportunity. He's given Jonah a second chance. And of course, our God is a God of grace and a God of second chances. Just a quick survey of scripture would remind us of the many men who initially failed in their quest to serve the Lord, but who eventually succeeded because the Lord gave them grace and gave them another opportunity. Men like Moses who committed murder at the age of 40, but who led the nation out of their slavery in Egypt at the age of 80. Or a man like Peter, who denied the Lord quite publicly, but yet was restored back into ministry. Even Paul the Apostle, who before he became a believer was a man who was attempting to walk with God. He had a great zeal for righteousness, but a fully and completely misaimed zeal, guilty of throwing Christians into prison and being responsible for their deaths. The Lord looks at a man like that and gave him such grace and enabled him to serve him in spirit and in truth. So the Lord, he's a God of second chances. Now these aren't weak, trivial, spineless second chances. These are second chances that are delivered to people who have been rocked by the grace of God and are mourning their own sin and depravity. It's not the Lord looking at a man like Jonah and saying, well, here's Jonah. And you know, it's not as if Jonah was saying, well, whatever. You know, I kind of did something bad there. And I guess it wasn't the best, but nobody's perfect. And, you know, you should give me a second chance because that's just what you do. That wasn't the attitude of Jonah. It wasn't the attitude of Moses or Peter or Paul. These were men that were broken and humbled by their sin. And when that ingredient is there, the Lord is able to give that second opportunity. I would say that these are some of the ingredients of that kind of second opportunity or the extension of God's grace. To really realize it and walk in it practically. One is a broken heart over your sin against God. Not just that you're broken hearted over the consequences of your sin, but you're brokenhearted that you have committed sin against the Lord. There needs to be an absence of personal justification, justifying what you did, why you did it and giving the reasons for whatever your failure has been. There needs to be confession, you know, to the Lord, but including Confession to those whom you have hurt, those you have wronged. And there should be a willingness to do everything in your power to rectify that which was wronged. So Jonah had these ingredients at this moment, and the Lord gives to him that second chance and tells him this second time to go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message Uh, that he would tell him. Now in verse 3 it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Of course he did. He's not going to flee from the Lord this time around, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly, verse 3, great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now some get hung up at this point uh, because of the three days' journey in breadth. But first of all, he says, An exceedingly great city. They've discovered a huge wall around the ruins of this city, 50 feet wide, 100 feet tall, eight miles in circumference. But an eight mile wall in circumference would indicate a city much smaller than a three days journey in breadth. So what's up with that? Well, probably what's happening here is that when he says three days journey and breadth, there are two things to factor. Number one, there was a larger wall outside of Nineveh that would include the sort of suburbs of the city and then some of the farmlands of the city as you got further from that city center. But probably the other thing to consider is that Jonah was traveling through the city and preaching as he went, going to the various districts, the various parks and communal areas within the city, going to the business district and the shopping district and the markets and all of that, where people were gathered, and he was proclaiming his message. And so it took a while for Jonah to get through Nineveh preaching this message. And Jonah began, verse 4, to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Listen to the message of Jonah. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now the question, of course, is what's up with this message? He just walks into Nineveh, lets all these people know Hey, 40 days from now, God is going to bring judgment upon you. He doesn't clarify all the wickedness that they had done. He doesn't apparently give them even the slightest glimmer of hope that if they repent, that God will forgive them. The message is blunt. The message is simple. The message is short. 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. And so the question is, what's up with this message? Is this the cruelty of God? in announcing his judgment in advance upon the Ninevite people. I mean, God is not contractually obligated to tell them of this judgment that's coming in 40 days. Is this just God's way of adding to the judgment? I don't know what the judgment was going to be, but if it was fire from heaven, was God saying, well, there will be fire from heaven in 40 days, but there will also be, Now, 40 days of psychological stress, anxiety, pressure, worry, as a result of you now knowing that in 40 days this judgment is coming. You're going to have 40 days of real difficulty as a result of knowing this information. No, that's not at all what God was doing. God was not messing with the Ninevite people. God was extending his mercy to these people. You see, for God to announce that in 40 days judgment would come, yes, certainly God could have just simply brought the judgment. But he is giving the people of Nineveh an opportunity to repent of their sin. That's exactly why Jonah didn't want to go in the first place. But that's why God is announcing it to them. And so listen to this. Jonah's message seemed to be very negative at first. But upon thinking about this a little bit longer, what you discover is that this proclamation of coming judgment was actually the grace and mercy of God. The reality, Christian, is that the message of the coming judgment is not a horrible message. It is a healthy message. Message. It might not be the happiest message. You might not write down in someone's birthday card, in 40 days you will be overthrown. It might not be the happiest, but it is incredibly healthy to hear about the future judgment of God, to hear that every single one of us must give an account of ourselves to the living and true God who sees all and knows all. That message is a biblical message and it's a healthy message. Some will try to make you feel as if it is a hate-filled message, but it is not. It is the love, the grace, the mercy of God to announce in advance that we must answer for our lives here on earth. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, he said, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, announcing, as I said, announcing in advance the judgment that is to come. So Jonah goes through the city and delivers this message. It says in verse 5 now, back in Jonah chapter 3, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They hear this message and they believe God. And they declare a fast, first of all. This is very typical of biblical times. Their fasts were not necessarily for health purposes, or even, you know, for the most part, for religious purposes. Oftentimes, their fasting was simply a result of their understanding of their sin, their brokenness over their sin, and so they just refused to eat for a period of time. Now, they did also have plenty of fasts that were designed to petition the Lord to worship the Lord, to be dependent upon Him completely and fully. But these people here in Nineveh, they just stop eating and they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a rough kind of material. Uh, it, it was a. It would not. This was not an attractive garment, and just really abasing themselves before God. And the word reached, verse 6, the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Notice that this response starts with the people and eventually reaches upwards to the king. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast... Verse 8, be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They knew of their violence. They felt guilt over it. Verse 9, who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now this edict or proclamation of the king of Nineveh, who was more than likely the king of Assyria as well, is fascinating. First of all, it's not very theologically advanced. He tells everyone, listen, we're going to fast and put on sackcloth, and we're even going to include the animals in this whole process. So it tells you maybe a little bit of what they thought of the animal kingdom. Maybe there's some sin amongst the animals, the king is thinking, and so they're going to fast and they're going to put on sackcloth as well which seems slightly awkward, but but then he says this thing at the end of his whole petition. He says, who knows God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In other words, he's saying, hey, listen, this God who has declared what he's going to do in 40 days, he might change his mind. Now, I said that this proclamation is not very theologically advanced and... I would say that about this particular statement from this king. You know, king, don't you know? God is sovereign. He declares what will come to pass, and it comes to pass. He does not change, and you cannot change him. He is sovereign through and through. But this king was hopeful. Like the sailors before, he said, don't let us perish Lord, as as a result of this man's blood, this king cries out and says, maybe God will change his mind and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish as well. And it says in verse 10, that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it now so many people have a problem with verse 10 and it is admittedly tricky here you have god declaring what he's going to do and here you have him relenting some translations say repenting of the thing that he said that he would do he changes his decision and He sees what they did and he turns from his evil way and he relents from the disaster he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Some people at this point point out that, you know, well, years later the prophet Nahum came along a few generations after this generation that repented. The Assyrians went back to their evil ways in the future and the prophet Nahum came along and prophesied against them and God actually did bring his judgment against them. And some will point out that this is merely human speak for the divine actions of God. And using human terms, relent of disaster, change, things like that. Words like that that we would use to describe mere men But you can't use them to describe God, but it's the best we've got, and so Jonah used it. This is just an anthropomorphism, just a wording used to describe the indescribable ways of God. And that may may be the case, but all I know is that I am so glad to serve and to know a God like this. And I think that God had promised that this would be his nature and way of dealing with with human beings. In Jeremiah chapter 18, God told Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house, and he goes down to the potter's house, and he sees the potter working on a vessel. The vessel is destroyed, and so he recreates a a new vessel. And the word of the Lord came to him at that moment and said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And then on the flip side, he says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I'll relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. The Lord had told Jeremiah and Judah and Jerusalem, he'd announced to them basically, listen, if I say I'm going to destroy a nation and they repent, I will turn from that destruction. It's the repentance clause. And I think the Ninevites, they hoped that God would relent, and he did. But in chapter 4, we see Jonah's response. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah goes to the Lord. He says, Lord, first of all, he's exceedingly angry. And He says to the Lord, Lord, this is why I refused to go to Nineveh in the first place. I know these things about you. I've read them in Exodus 34. I've heard of them in Joel chapter 2. I've seen smatterings of these truths throughout the entire Old Testament. You're gracious. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. And the one that really stuck Jonah the most, you are relenting from disaster. (laughs) You say you're going to bring it, and then they repent, and you don't bring it. You relent from disaster. And what is Jonah doing? He is questioning the very nature of God. Like a legalist, he's saying, I don't like these things about you. I don't like that you're loving. I don't like that you're gracious. I don't like that you're merciful. I don't like that you're slow to anger. And I don't like that you relent from disaster. I love the disaster. I don't like that you would ever relent of it. He questions the nature of God. And he ends his prayer in verse 3 by saying, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. His request is very simple. Lord, I want To die. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? What an incredible question from the Lord. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah is questioning the nature of God. God now questions the nature of Jonah. You know, Jonah, how's this whole anger thing working out for you? Do you have joy? Do you have peace? Are you in a good and healthy place? How is this anger sitting with you right now? Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, verse 5, went out of the city. Now this is God is going to teach Jonah a lesson. Went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah, notice, is holding out hope that God will still destroy the city in 40 days. He doesn't want to go back to Israel without being able to proclaim that God destroyed the Ninevites. That's all he wants to be able to say to them. So he sits down, holding out hope that God will destroy them. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Perhaps a miraculous plant, perhaps the castor plant. Either way, God is involved and this plant grows and it tells us that Jonah is exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah is angry throughout the whole book of Jonah, but here's the one moment that he's exceedingly glad. He gets a plant, provides him shade, provides him shelter. He loves this plant, brand new plant, but he loves it. But when dawn came up, verse 7, the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So he loves his plant, but then God sends a worm to destroy the plant. Everything in Jonah is obedient to God. Right down to this worm, the fish, the Ninevites, the sailors, the wind and the wave. Everything obeys God except for God's prophet, God's man. And the worm eats his plant. He's distressed. The sun beats down on him. And he cries out again, Lord, take my life. I want to die. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is it good for you to be this upset about that plant, Jonah? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And here's where the lesson of the book of Jonah comes in. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God looks at Jonah and says, Jonah, is it right for you to be this upset about your plant, your creature comfort? He says, yes, Lord, even to die. And then God says, well then, if you are allowed to be this upset for something you did not build and something that is so brand new, don't you think that I, who formed these Ninevite people, who have known them, From before the foundation of the world, I know how many heartbeats every one of them have taken. And I know the hair, the number of hairs on their head. Don't you think that I, who am much more invested in these people than you are in that plant, don't you think that I should have compassion on these people, 120,000 who do not know their right hand from their left, either 120,000 children or 120,000 spiritually darkened people. Don't you think I should care for them? And with that, the book of Jonah is over. It's as if God is saying to his man and is saying to Israel and is saying to us, look, if you're going to get so worked up and excited about the trivialities of life. Please remember that there are people, there are people that I love and that I care for so much more than these minor trivialities of life. And the quickest way for Jonah to escape his misery would be to get on the bandwagon with God and to love the Ninevite people, and to love the world around him, that he might reach them with the message of God. We get so caught up in so many things, so many silly things that pale in comparison to the importance of reaching people. Let that truth and let this book settle inside your heart. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.